You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. What I hope is apparent after all these episodes is that it is entirely possible to think critically and to love monsters at the same time. We have a lot of listeners, listeners like you, who seem to feel the same way, so I think you'll dig this episode. We're going to be talking to the editor of the British magazine, The Skeptic. She apparently loves monsters and skepticism as much as we do, and I think that comes through in our discussion. Enjoy. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Deborah Hyde is a folklorist, cultural anthropologist, and the editor-in-chief of the British version of The Skeptic. She is also a production manager and coordinator and has appeared in a number of movies, including The Brothers Grimm and Doghouse. Deborah writes and lectures extensively about a number of paranormal subjects, including vampires, werewolves, witches, ghosts, and poltergeists. We originally booked her to talk about poltergeists, and we will use some of her interview in an upcoming episode about the topic, but her interests are so in keeping with the theme of this show that we basically ended up just having a really fun discussion about all kinds of monsters. So instead of poltergeists, today you get potpourri, but I have a sense you'll enjoy it. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you very much for having me. And so first question, how did you become interested in the paranormal? I've been interested as long as I can remember. Um, I usually attribute it to um, to spending too much time with mad aunties when I was younger. And uh, I started out as a believer, I guess most people do. And um, my mother was a very responsible woman. She wouldn't let me watch horror movies on the television in case it warped my fragile mind. But then we would go to see my aunties. My aunties all smoked. So I remember just sitting in this afternoon sunlight in rafts of 
smoke. It was like a special effect. And they would tell me the most blood-curdling things that were allegedly true. And, um, you know, sort of bad guides and good guides on each shoulder and ghosts and things like that. And um, it was the most... It was the most incredible frisson. I mean, it was it was marvellous stuff. It was real live folklore. And I grew up with that. And the love of horror, supernatural horror, has never, ever left me. How did your mother feel about that then, being exposed to all of this with your aunts? Oh, that was fine because... <laughs> it wasn't TV. No, no, she was fine because it wasn't it wasn't Vincent Price on the television. It was oh. just, you know, it was just the real world. So, um, wow. you know, so that was fine. Yeah, I, I uh, have a somewhat similar background in that um, I was from a family that really had strong religious viewpoints, and so my mm-hmm. mom, my mom just suspected that anything paranormal, and that includes ghosts uh, and UFOs to some extent, and perhaps even some monsters, where they're probably not real. But what it is is demons, because demons do that yeah. kind of thing. So it's all a very it's all Protestant demons. approach to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So really, there's nothing you can't just pray away, right? Um, (laughs) You know, I suspect someday she's going to listen to this show, and I hope she doesn't get mad at me, because I do love my mother. (laughs) We just come up with different worldviews in the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, But So so you mentioned movies, and I know you've actually done some work with uh, film as well, but Mm -hmm. uh, do you recall any particular films that were strongly influential back then? Well, I didn't get to watch them until I was a lot older because um, my mother was very responsible and just wanted me to believe in real hideous monsters instead of fictional ones. Um, But uh, Do you know, one of the first, I think one of the first sort of profoundly disturbing horror movies I ever saw was Alien and it is a horror movie rather than a science fiction movie I mean it's it's a sort of like it's a haunted house movie um and and the suspense and the monster and everything like that that really didn't have an effect on me and I really loved Exorcist as well I, I still think of it as a it's just a very very good movie um if something is only good because it's horror then it's not you, you know that's that's okay but Really, good horror movies are just good movies, and and I think Exorcist and Exorcist Three um, are both both still stand out as classics. Sure, I, I had the same experience as well there, where I had to wait. I was delayed in seeing a lot of the horror films that are so mm. important culturally. So um, I missed out on some of. The, I, I got to see anything black and white. I think I was allowed for the most part to see older films. You know, that was okay. Oh, okay, yeah, they're, they're not so scary. No, <laughs> they're too old. <laughs> There's that. So now you, you've done a lot of uh, lectures and talks as well. Um, mm. And so you, you and I think uh, you're one of the people in the skeptic community who knows uh, probably more about werewolves than I do, I would guess. But I think we both seem to have a very strong, uh, passionate interest in werewolves. What about werewolves fascinates you? What's driving that, do you think? It's a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the werewolves... They have they have a lot of uh, they have a lot of attractions to me. I think first of all, it's the period in history. For me, I, I really love um, kind of medieval, late medieval, and early Reformation Europe, and the big witch hunts were associated with kind of early modernity rather than the deepest dark ages or people being ignorant at all. So um, it, it was kind of like the, the birth pangs of modernity i suppose i like that era and that happens to be the era where you get a lot of witch hunts and 
werewolves happen to be included in a lot of witch hunts. So it, it's just the right place in history. Also, I was terrified of them when I was a kid. Um, so there's got to be a sense of just getting to know something about something to to, to take the potential away for, from it. And um, also, they're just... It's just a fascinating subject. It's just it's a very beautiful subject. I mean, you think about the amount of art that it has inspired, um, modern art as well, Golden Age comics and stuff like that. Uh, and I, I also wondered why wolves as a natural species had been so maligned. Um, and it, it, that partly happened through werewolf folklore as well. So that for all of those reasons, I was, I was fascinated by the subject. Well, I didn't know that there was a connection really between werewolves and witch hunts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, in the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, they witches were accused of all sorts of things, blighting crops and uh, um, making people ill, things like mm -hmm. that, and making um, livestock ill. And one of the things that they were able to do, uh, witches could do, is to change shape. And right. we're very familiar with witches changing into hares, which is unusual, actually, as an animal to change into in world folklore because most of the time, if you're going to take the trouble to change into an animal, human beings normally like to change into apex predators, which is why, um, you know, a were-rabbit is such an intrinsically ridiculous idea. And, uh, of, of, of the non-apex predator animals, um, the hare was a very common shape for a witch during that time. And there was a great deal of learned ink uh, was wasted on whether or not the, their shape had really honestly changed or whether or not this was actually um, a mirage produced by Satan. Oh. So they spoke about the size of brains and how much heat was produced by brains and whether it was possible to put a man or a woman's brain and its functions into a smaller brain of a dog or a wolf so um just an indication there that just because you write at length about something it doesn't mean that it means a single thing good point uh, <laughs> yeah so so there were lots of werewolf trials that were associated with witch trials and they were wow they were a lot of the time they were prosecuted by dominicans and dominicans had started um, during the, the Cathar times in France, they'd kind of started out as hunters out of heresy and the charges of heresy had slowly become become sort of the basis of the legal framework later for witch hunts. Mm -hmm. um, and I do a whole lecture about that as well, legally, how Europe went from this, this the ideas of heresy to the ideas of witchcraft. And I think uh, the I th the modern view of werewolves is one that seems to be based on curse and transmittable uh, disease. But mm. that's a really modern idea. I mean, that probably the late 1800s, early 1900s was the first time that mm. sort of showed up in my research. And But before that, the, the witchcraft tie is there because everyone who wants to be a werewolf has to go through a very deliberate effort. I mean, it takes a lot of work to become a werewolf. Uh, oh yeah, it's a contract with Satan. You have to do. You have to deliberately go and do something antisocial, and then he has to provide you with the means to change into a werewolf. And so, I have wondered a bit about whether or not some werewolf stories, um, outside of well, I guess there's the whole thing about supernatural worldview. You you look at something happens, and you look for a supernatural explanation because mm. that's the way the whole world was for those people who were experiencing these things. But I wonder if there's an explanatory value for werewolves uh, maybe as being a way to explain serial killers 
um, or early serial killers, or and I say early, I'm sure there's always been serial killers because mm, yeah. But uh, I know at least some of the most famous cases certainly sound like it. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of the Werewolf of Chalon, which was um, presented to the Parliament of Paris, and I think I think it was 1598. I actually can't remember off the top of my head. I would have to check that. And this guy was was quite clearly a serial killer. He had casks of bones of children in his shop, and people were naturally. Uh, thought this was completely vile and he was executed and unfortunately they were so traumatised by the whole thing that they also burnt the records which is a shame for us Um, but undoubtedly during this era, during that era in that time uh, werewolfism was used as a substitute for um, bloodthirsty or you know it was a way of I suppose uh, moving the blame over from a human agent to, to making out that he was something less than human or something different than human. So, yes, it definitely was used as a metaphor. And I'm also thinking of Peter Stump, or it might be Stump, I'm not sure. Stump. The, him, that's really interesting because to read his, to read the account of his trial and what he was accused of, um, he was, what was he, bloodily bold and arrogant and never was a man from true nature so far, you know, descended or something it was words to that effect he was accused of having an incubus um of having unnatural relationships with his family members i mean they really went to town on the explanations for for peter stump and he was also executed in the town of bedborough in front of lots of all sorts of eminent people so this was no common or garden trial and to me i i think it looks like a political trial i think it looks like um I think it looks like mudslinging. And Bedbo was in a place that had changed affiliation during that, that Reformation period, that kind of 150-year period when um, uh, the Catholic and Protestant churches were fighting for ascendancy. It, was, it, was real, it, it wasn't just where you went on Sunday to worship either. I mean, this was serious political power and uh, financial power um, that they were fighting for at this time. So, I, I, you know, I wonder if, if that bears... The, the mark of a political assassination in effect? I, that's a really good question. I think we did an episode on spectral hounds and it turned out mm. that uh, some of the most famous, well I guess the most famous case um, was actually more about uh, sociopolitical and religious cultural issues than about actual giant spectral hounds. <laughs> but, you, you know, you lose the context uh, when you only retell the supernatural side of the story, I think. Um, and, and, and it's sort of, uh, I mean, there's that famous woodcut uh, of the Peter Stump trial, execu- of the execution. And it's like... And in a in a way, it's like a it's almost like a, a poster that has survived. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's, that's the thing is, you could buy a souvenir of a werewolf trial, and and that mm. kind of makes you do a double take. You're thinking, what they they want a werewolf trial trial to go viral um, in in a 16th century fashion, uh, and so yeah, the fact that 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 there was so much publicity around it does make me wonder what the motivation was. I also think it's hilarious that they accuse him of of all of his depravities and say that he was the most bloodthirsty thing that had ever happened. And then when you read what they did to him, they broke his body on a wheel and they Mm. pulled his fingers off with pincers and goodness knows what. And um, so I I thought it was a bit of a case of the pot calling the kettle black there. (laughs) Yeah, it it, it looks like a brutal execution. I mean, Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. 
horrible stuff. But I wanted to ask about something tangential to this. I'm wondering if there is a connection at all uh, with feral children, wild children, like uh, Victor of Aviron, I think, Aviron. Um, I'm just wondering if there's a connection between those feral children and the idea that they were werewolves of some kind. If you know anything about that, I know it's kind of very specific. It's an interesting question because there were there have been various um, there was Kamala and Amala uh, in the 1800s they were discovered by I think a Reverend Singh and they they were discovered near some wolves and um, unfortunately the wolves were killed when they went to collect the girls and the girls weren't properly developed and I, I just don't know whether they had um, got some children with learning difficulties who were abandoned mm-hmm. by their parents who happened right. to be found near wolves or whether they had been looked after for longer. There's no way of knowing, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've got Romulus and Remus as a mythological yes. uh, idea of, of wolves, uh, you know, giving succor to children. And yeah. I've got to say, I, I mean, I think wolves get a bad rap, but I think also the thought of them looking after babies for seven years and not eating them is probably a bit optimistic. So um, it sounds like a viral video on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've got the Jungle Book out there right now, which is a yeah. great documentary if anybody wants to go see it. <laughs> but I, I, that whole story, you, you know, history's full of these really odd little cases where uh there's these feral people and mm-hmm. and you're right i i think the ability to uh take care of oneself you know some of that may be happening without a high degree of intelligence you know but uh maybe some of those are people that were just let go and they lived at the periphery of civilization, you know. Mm, there, were, there were a couple of kids in the Middle Ages who were who were kind of pale green. And they oh, were the green kids. Left, yeah, I know this story. Yeah, they were yeah. thought to have been left by the fairies. A quick editorial comment here. We're talking of the Green Children of Woolpit, which I first heard of via Mike Dash's fabulous book on a variety of French topics titled Borderlands. There's also a Wikipedia article, which I'll link to in the show notes, but this story of green children, mysterious languages, and unusual tunnels is indeed fascinating and worth a deeper treatment than we've got time for in this episode. Um, you know, abandoned children with learning difficulties aren't, and different explanations, that's not an unusual trope. Yeah, and we've had some recent cases, or more recent cases, like uh, Jeannie, you might have heard of her, and she suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of her father, and it was uh, just stored in a an attic somewhere and uh, mistreated and didn't didn't learn language. Um, but I think, historically anyway, you often hear of these cases and hear that, or they were raised by wolves or something like that. Yeah. You don't hear that nowadays, obviously. No, no, much. we just have a dis- different explanation for the same yes. sort of data set. It does go to remind people that that just because you're capable of reproducing doesn't mean you're going to be a good parent. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's a subject for another show, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So so in the old werewolf stories, they weren't uh, really uh, disease-based. Like, say, there doesn't seem to be a disease tie-in or or a a transmittability. But but vampires um, Mm -hmm. uh, seem to have... At least, I guess the very earliest stories of vampires didn't necessarily have a viral component, but but pretty soon, uh, the the most popular stories um, of vampires 
really do talk about something like a disease. I think it's, you've given yeah. some lectures on that. Do you want to talk about it, that? It's very hard to avoid the contagion idea when you talk about vampires. And it depends. You know, I think the V word gets overused. I think, um, you know, people say all oh, Filipino vampires or Greek vampires or whatever. I'm quite fond of keeping the V word to the Greek Greece and the Balkans. Um, because there are an awful lot of blood-sucking monsters from mythology from all over the world and and all over history. Um, uh, But if we look at the vampires from Greece and the Balkans, generally what happens is one person dies, and then after they die, a lot of other people die too. So you've got this, uh, this epidemic factor. And so... In order to to try and stop the head vampire, this sense of contagion, they go and they dig all the corpses up and the bodies that have uh, decomposed sufficiently, they think, okay, that's fine, they're passing over to the other side. But if they find somebody who's still in good condition, they think, well, they're kind of hanging on somehow and they're they're taking life, they're taking blood from the still living and that's how we've got our epidemic going um there was a a case of a guy called arnold powell in um i was just going to ask about him (laughs) yeah around the balkans and in in his case he died in 1725 and the contagion that he was blamed for happened um many years later six or seven years later so when they, they when they went to dig up all the corpses he was the guy who was still in the earth looking good and they were thinking, well, you know, this latest, the, this latest group of deaths um, has kind of appeared out of nowhere. So maybe the contagion was maintained in the livestock in the meantime. And even though vampirism as a disease doesn't exist, that's nonetheless, that's not a bad model of contagion, you know, keeping animals and people apart and seeing that one person can seed a disease. And, and it, it's kind of, I suppose, the most basic hygiene you can get. So... Um, a lot of folkloric activities aren't completely useless in their in their conception or, or in the activities that they produce. And so, what do you put that uh, the different rates of decomposition? What do you put that down to? Is it just a matter of maybe the skin retracting from the nails and uh, mm. things like that? That it's really just a, a different rate of decomposition rather than that person's preserved better. It is apparently there are all sorts of things that can alter the rate of decomposition. Um, things like the pH of the soil that people were put into. Bear in mind, they didn't have coffins very often. They most often had winding sheets. Um, uh, to the time of year, I, I did a little video on uh, a woman called Mercy Brown who came from Rhode Island in the United States, and she died in the late 19th century. And the report that said that her corpse was in a very good condition, really she'd probably been kept in, in what amounted to a freezer um, for a couple of months over winter. So if someone's going to be in either really cold ground or if they're going to be kept in you know, a snowy environment for that long, it's not that surprising that they right. wouldn't decompose at the same rate as, as if they were at room temperature. So there are many, many factors that can alter um, rate of decomposition and the thing is i think i think it's very easy for us to laugh and say how could these people be so dumb but you don't keep corpses around for for a very good reason and that is that they're a sense of contagion so to do the scientific studies on understanding how people decompose what happens when they decompose naturally and the variables that make them decompose at different rates is really something for a very modern and safe era so they didn't know i mean if they if they Mm -hmm. dug someone up and they looked good they thought something peculiar was going on. And, and I think 
I think we would probably feel exactly the same way if we hadn't had our educations. Well, yeah. that's the other thing that I find fascinating about it, because in the same way that the vampires were believed to have the ability to transfer this condition, it also shows us that the ideas of vampirism had a high degree of uh, transferability. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so the idea of vampires is as viral and it seems to be as widespread as, you know, the, I guess, the diseases themselves in some yeah. ways. Well, the mm. thing that, was, the thing that I, I wonder about with the Mercy Brown incident is bear in mind that the, um, the Balkan vampire cases that we know of started to come out of that part of the world in the early 1700s. And then you've got the case of Mercy Brown in 1892, um, in Rhode Island, and you're thinking, well, how did this precise idea where they they, they dug this woman and, and two members of her family who'd also passed in many years previously, um, and they burnt her heart and they fed the ashes to her brother to stop him dying too. It could have happened in the Balkans in the 1700s. How did that precise idea get transmitted? And we don't really know. It's been proposed that perhaps some French Huguenot um, uh, emigrants from uh, from France and going over to Rhode Island had perhaps transmitted the idea, but nobody nobody really knows. You could almost, uh, I, I would almost be certain it would be an oral transmission. That yeah, because you it's a seafaring community. Rhode Island's not. I mean, yeah. there's ships around there, and people travel, and ideas travel. So I, the, you know, yeah. it, uh, diffusion. I, I in many ways, I think the uh, the seaports at that time were the internet, right? <laughs> of their day. <laughs> So all kinds of things coming and going. For IDs and bubonic plague. Well, right, and sexually transmitted diseases and many things. <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing is, as you say, Rhode Island is coastal. And the other th- interesting thing about Rhode Island at that point in history as well is that it was religiously really kind of independent. Um, there were a bit further north you had Puritans and uh, a more sort of central kind of settlement pattern. But in Rhode Island, people would bury their dead on their own land and so they could have been doing all sorts of peculiar things for ages and nobody would have known because there was no central arena for it to happen and there was no central authority to go to to stop it so um mercy brown is far from being the only uh, vampire in quotes on rhode island and and that had something to do with the the kind of you know the, the the history um the sociology and the religious background of the area you know it's also of interest to me that the ideas of vampirism have never died out. I mean, people, I guess what happened around the mid to late 1800s was there was a more um, codified, or maybe it codified, I'm going to say codified, but probably codified. <laughs> <laughs> the scientific methodology became a more uh, defined process. Mm. And the disease theory of medicine um, and the idea of microbes became um, a more uh, plausible and testable explanation for what was going on. You've got, I mean, people already know by the early 1800s that if they heat up their food, it can be preserved. But it's not until the 1880s that Pasteur defines exactly what you need to do and why is it actually working and, you know, really yeah. demonstrates it in the lab. So, and you've got Robert Koch and the, t- the tuberculosis bacterium and that sort of thing. And, exactly. and tuberculosis was, was really quite endemic in poor communities at that time. And so, oh. so, so that transition, I was just saying that transition to a scientific explanation for what's happening to the people, why are they dying versus vampires, <laughs> it's only because of the testability and reproducibility of those stories that they become dominant. But... 
it still doesn't kill off the vampires. Not only uh, are there still people today who feel like they need to drink blood or who believe that they're psychic vampires, there are still people who, despite all this being around, this idea of it not being supernatural, still treat corpses like vampires. I mean, it was, what, in the 2000s? Like, that they dug up a corpse in Romania, I think? Yeah, Yeah, it, it still happens. The thing is, the thing I would say is that having a mechanism for something and finding a reason for it, those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So you might say that, um, yeah, well, of course, uh, you you know, um, somebody has died of tuberculosis, for example, and it's a tuberculosis bacilli, but that actually the supernatural vector of, of that is uh, is a vampire. So you can still you can still basically get the science side just being the mechanism, and the supernatural entity being the reason why, because they answer two different questions really: how and why. Um, and and people who are religious aren't aren't dumb; they just are looking for reasons why. Um, so I, 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 and also there are different there are different rates of education in different communities and fashionable ways of looking at things in different communities too. I mean, there are still churches in London, and I'm sure you have them in the United States too, who will tell people that they're being um, attacked by sexual demons because they have they suffer from sleep paralysis. Right. Uh, so. You you know you you've you've got kind of like your you how and why mechanisms. I, I don't I don't think there's anything about modernity which necessarily means that people will stop believing in supernatural stuff. True. We we're also talking about diseases and contagion, and I was just wondering about the connection between TB consumption uh, and vampires as well, um, because it seems like a lot of the symptoms of being a vampire were possibly symptoms of TB. Very, very strong connection, I think, um, because the thing with tuberculosis is that it's still pretty difficult to treat, even now. Uh, you've got to really stick to your antibiotic re- regimen for a very long time. Um, it, right. it can sometimes uh, it can sometimes appear to turn up very quickly, even though people have been suffering from year, for years. So people can appear to wane very, very suddenly, as though they are just being, you know, the life is being sucked out of them. Um, mm-hmm. So there were all sorts of, I think there were all sorts of transmissible diseases that must have given rise to, uh, to, to vampire folklore and to fairy folklore as well. I mean, there was a, something called a joint eater, um, which would, the idea was that it was invisible and it, and it would sit there with you and you would have your meal and it would have the, the foison or essence of the meal. It would have the really good stuff. And you, you might have what you could see, but it was empty, really, of, of anything valuable. So this joint sharer or this joint eater would just take all of the goodness out of whatever you were getting, and you would continue, um, in the words of uh, Robert Kirk, lean like a hawk or a heron. So you can imagine that somebody would just be eating normally, but they would still just be fading, and people would be thinking, what on earth is causing this? Where is, mm-hmm. where is all the vitality and the energy going? And then it spreads. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then it spreads. Oh, so but but that would probably not be a tapeworm or something like that because people would have known what that was, right? I mean, that I assume. With a tapeworm, you could you would be um uh you would be um, I'm trying to think of the posh word for this. Um That's you would be the evac- symptoms. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. You would you would be evacuating proglottids, wouldn't you? You would That's I, I think kind of what I assumed, right? That exactly. Yeah, there's there's evidence uh and and people know that there are you know that there are illnesses caused by natural things but um 
all sorts of plagues must have been really quite mysterious. I imagine so. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the Black Death, you know, the Black Death um, in 1349 and 50 in England and all over the rest of the continent just prior to that sure. caused massive upheaval in the way that people viewed the meaning of their lives and the, and the meanings of their communities and whether they were doing the right thing. I mean, massive, massive social changes, and not just because of the number of people who die, which affects demographics, but also because people were looking at the meaning of, of things. Why did everybody I- die? I'd heard one story that people believed it was some kind of giant that was stalking the countryside and was carrying Black Death and spreading it amongst people, and that with TB it was believed to be some kind of mist or miasma. Yeah, a bad, a foul miasma, yeah, that was why people, I mean, again, you know, it's it's not entirely bad ideas there. If you you shouldn't live next to a swamp, it stinks. If you don't know better, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's just, there's the, uh, there's a book called The Ghost Map about the, uh, the figuring out that cholera was water-based. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, I'd probably, it's on my to-do list. I've read two other books by that author, so it's on my reading list. But um, I've read the, the summaries of the uh, how it was determined. It's just fascinating. Because it takes a lot of detective work to get away from the supernatural or just wrong approaches to why things are happening the way they are. Mm. Well, I think with cholera, didn't they have uh, water carriers who'd go from house to house spreading or sharing what they believed was safe water and they were actually spreading cholera instead? <laughs> yeah. and But, you know, so many really interesting technological advances came from the people trying to figure out how to deal with these things. Like uh, uh, air conditioning uh, has a strong relationship to uh, dealing with uh, bad air and malaria and that sort of thing. So. Mm. Um, I, well, yeah. I love it. I love air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, well, we're still trying to sort a lot of these things out today with Ebola and AIDS, trying to yeah. figure out what they are and how to cure them or prevent them. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, they were until very recently they were looking for the reservoir species for Ebola, weren't they? Um, and, and working out why you kept getting this these, these breakouts of hemorrhagic fever in this specific mm. area. Very yeah. scary. Yeah. 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 It is scary um, and real. That's the other scary part. Real, yeah, more scary than fiction. <laughs> but uh, that. So, but let's go back to fiction a little bit. Um, hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So, whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and Wagon.
So you've worked uh, in horror films a bit? I have, yeah. So how did that come about? Because it's, that's well, one of those things I think a lot of people are interested in, but it's not necessarily something you can hop into. No, it kind of isn't. Um, I, I've, my background is in business, and uh, like I, I think I, I said to you, I'm, I'm basically a money juggler. And um, my other half started doing special makeup effects. He uh, prosthetic makeup and creatures and all this kind of stuff. So as soon as he started getting contracts that were big enough, he needed someone to juggle his money. So that was me. Um, and we've had <laughs> over the years, we've had an awful lot of fun doing it. I do, I do it for various kinds of areas. At the moment, I'm working in set construction, but I think that the prosthetic makeup and creature effects was uh, was kind of some of the funnest years. There was we w- we were going to do a fundraiser for a film that I actually. It did get funded. It was Doghouse. And um, we had to take some stuff to show and tell some potential investors. And uh, so we were carrying corpses out of the house because we had a few. (laughs) (laughs) And we were putting them in the car. (laughs) And um, the police had stopped this some poor guy right outside the house. I mean, I don't know what he'd done. I, he, he, I think it was for speeding, but there were there were like three police cars um, just all over this guy. They were talking to him and taking down details and everything like that. And um, we were walking out of our house, putting corpses into the back of our car to drive into central London. And they didn't even, <laughs> they didn't even look, you know. I mean, talk about inintentional brightness. As skeptics, this should be a lesson to us all. That should have been filmed. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, could have gone either way, though. I thought you were going to say that they, they caught you and let the other guy go. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even notice. They weren't looking for it. That's so Fantastic. <laughs> well, so how did you get involved with organized skepticism? Um, skeptics if there is such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Disorganized skepticism. Yeah, herding cats. Uh, I, I went to um, a skeptics in the pub in London and... The first lecture I went to uh, was with Professor Chris French, and um, I met Sid Rodriguez, who uh, who organises Skeptics in the Pub in London, or who used to. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, you know, just the first night that I was there. It was interesting stuff to listen to and my kind of people. And I thought, wow, this is good. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to this. So I did. Neat. I, I like Chris a lot. He's a really he's got he's done some really great research. Not all of it ties in with what we could use on Monster Talk, but uh, mm. I really really like his work. He's always on TV. Always seeing him. He is, yeah. And Sid's great as well. We love Sid. Yeah. So, how did you get involved with the magazine? Um, well, I, I knew I knew Chris for a few years, and I had helped out um, with the magazine. And then when he was ready to retire, uh, I guess there were there were a few candidates, and I was the only one who so grossly underestimated the, uh, the <laughs> amount of work that it involved <laughs> that I elbowed my way to the front of the line. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, so it was after a, a little while of helping out, and then finally taking over because Chris had been doing it for a long time. He really did deserve a break. Yeah, I was uh, editor of the Australian Skeptic magazine for a little while, and it was a one-man band. I had to do everything myself, so I totally empathise. A lot of work. (laughs) It is fantastic, though, because the number of things that I get to read and the people I talk to, and and I I really, really love it. I I truly do. Oh, it's very exciting stuff. Mm. So uh, this is my ignorance, but do you have a digital version? No, um, that's a shortage of time issue. We will. Yeah, as, as soon as oh, I 
yeah, as soon as I, I get the time to sort that out, we definitely will. Yeah, the um, I really like the software they're using for the American Skeptic magazine, um, which is spelled different and has different content and is not related. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, I think they actually approached, Michael Shermer approached the Australian Skeptic magazine and the British version as well and asked if he could use that, that name. Oh, okay. Well, the... It, so, okay. the the um, I was going to say the uh, the software itself though is, is is so neat to be able to read on uh, on your mobile device and mm-hmm. but not just that it's the ability to search the articles that I like that's when I'm doing research you know it's so common that if you're interested in a topic and and it's been already skeptically treated you may not know that someone's already done a lot of the groundwork um, yeah I'm thinking in terms of like uh, just going back to like 2008 or so I was doing some research and. Um, it turned out that uh, Melvin Harris had already done all the work before years ago. And then not only that, but then he was reproducing work that had been done by a French guy uh, named Paul Huse, uh, who had also done all the work. And it was like, <laughs> like, we're all doing, we're all thinking about the problem. How can we figure out the answer? And we're coming to the same conclusions, but doing all the work unnecessarily because <laughs> the internet is just so cool. Full stop. I remember years ago when I used to subscribe to, you know, every occult bookseller that you can think of and what you had to do, it was basically, it was a scrum. You would get the, the list through the post and then it was whoever got to the phone first and said, yes, I'll take it. So I remember um, all my various weird books, just how hard it was to get them 20 years ago. And now you can pretty much get hold of anything. Even if you can't get a first edition, you can get a PDF copy. And I've, you, you know, I've got bookshelves full of PDFs of um, of weird, weird demon manuals. Cool. Oh, I, I, I imagine the hardest part is putting the demons together, right? Like, it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not very cooperative. You're quite right, yeah. Demon IKEA. I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, you know, an Allen wrench and a, a, pex, uh, a Pentagon, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so you know, the, the work on vampires does tie into poltergeist. We had on a, a guy named um, Richard Sugg. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'll have to fix that in post if I did that wrong, uh, but I think that's his name. And he's uh, he's done a lot of research. He was working on a book about the ties between vampire lore and poltergeist lore. Yeah, and we talked about that a little bit on the show before, but uh, I find the overlap there very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a case of a guy called he was called the Shoemaker of Silesia, and there's um, some of the early writers on vampires were were a bit uh, a bit relaxed uh, about what a vampire was, but the Shoemaker gets mentioned a lot as a potential vampire. Uh, he killed himself, and and people who generally die the wrong way, people who die early, are, are quite often um, good candidates to be vampires. And uh, his family had tried to cover it up. He'd cut his own throat, so he'd done it really quite heroically. Wow. And, yeah. That's a commitment. <laughs> <laughs> that really is. And But he'd been given proper funerary rights because people didn't realize that he'd killed himself. Um, and the, the way that they found out was because there was poltergeist activity. He was he, There was all sorts of knocking and banging and things being knocked all over the place. So they counted him as a vampire because he basically came back from the dead. I, I, th- I think, um, I, you know, I think maybe the, the word is a bit misapplied, but yeah, there's certainly an awful lot of poltergeist and vampire overlap. It's interesting the the the, the part that I always find 
The, it, okay, so if you're going to categorize uh, uh, anything, and which it seems to be a very human thing to do, you have to like say, well, these things are the definitive traits of a vampire, and these things are the definitive traits of a poltergeist, and these things are a Bigfoot. You know what I mean? Like, there's these this natural tendency to try to like define uh, yeah. what's in and what's out, and but it really seems like there's a lot of overlap. There is a lot of overlap. And if you try too hard to define, then you actually lose the human story behind it. Because at the end of the day, it's not really interesting specifically, specifically what a poltergeist is or what a vampire is. What's really interesting is perhaps how um, specifics of a belief changed across a time or changed across a region. So in order to just get the most out of the history, I think you've got to be careful not to be too rigid. So I wanted to ask a question again. This is tangential now to we've been we've moved on to uh, poltergeist, but just you were talking about suicides, um, mm. and I'm just wondering how were suicides dealt with historically? Maybe uh, going back a couple of hundred years ago um, with English customs, um, I'd heard something about how some suicides were buried outside of the church grounds or under crossroads. Is that true? Do you know? Yes, in in Europe, certainly that was the case. I don't think all suicides have been ignominious throughout history and throughout uh, you know different places. I mean, in ancient Roman times, it was the dignified thing to do if you you know if you needed to, if you'd run out of dignity or whatever. And, and same in um, the same in Japan. Japan, uh, yeah. Decent suicide was an honourable thing, mm-hmm. but in Europe, no, you weren't supposed to. In Christian Europe, you weren't supposed to because your life was a gift from God and it wasn't right for you to get rid of it so uh burying at crossroads was a very normal thing burying burying um what i call unnatural predators at crossroads is a very very constant theme if you've got something that looks dodgy and it's going to come back as an unnatural predator as opposed to a natural predator like a wolf or a tiger then um Putting it at a crossroads, it's kind of, it's a stateless sort of a place. And also, hopefully, when it gets up out of the ground, it's a bit confused because it's got four options. Yes. So, so, I mean, there was, I think, the last suicide to be buried at a crossroads in London. It was actually fairly recently, and it's it's about sort of eight miles from where I I live. So it's it's not too far away in distance or time. Perhaps a couple hundred years or so, 150 years. It doesn't years. work as well now because the ghosts have GPS. So. <laughs> <laughs> Got to think of that. So, yeah. Damn technology. The, the ghost positioning system. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> there are all sorts of common ways of stopping unnatural predators doing things. Basically, you burn them. That That's very common. Um, and ultimately, that's what you can do with a vampire. Uh, you can... Literally rocks- makes a vampire. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and oh, um, you can put rocks on the grave to to just physically keep it underneath. Uh, but again, we're, we're getting back to something that is where you you can we can imbue it with um, a supernatural sense, but it probably comes from a very practical background, which is that if you if you can't dig very deeply, you really need to dig something very deeply for it to stay down there. Um, corpses. Um, move and pop and do all sorts of disgusting things if they're not embalmed and so you can get wolves getting to them there was a lot of confusion between uh, wolf and uh, vampire folklore 
because you could think either that the wolf was fighting the vampire who was trying to get out of his grave or you could think that the vampire was changing into a wolf to go out and do his nefarious business and you can see how that would very easily occur if you could only bury someone two feet under because you lacked the manpower or because it was the middle of winter and you simply couldn't go any deeper into frozen earth so um, mounds or cairns of stones are very useful at keeping corpses under the ground and at keeping predators out you know that reminds me of a this is not directly supernatural related but the um there's a, a story about New Orleans and mm-hmm. the in Louisiana that the uh, that the reason that they use above ground burial there is yeah. because that uh, if there's high, the water table so high yeah. that the that the coffins will pop up out of the ground yeah and in Florida and, as well yeah but but it's not exactly the case I mean it, what 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 I I looked into it and I, I was trying to find out why. That would be the case because there's lots of coastal places and there's lots of places where there are uh, high water tables. But in those places, it's not always true that people bury above ground. And um, and what my research turned up was that the reason they switched to that style burial had more to do with the fact that a Spanish governor had come in control of the city. And they sort of adopted the Spanish style of burials. And in my right. tra- travel in Spain, even when I wasn't near water, people had above ground burials. It was a very common way for them to be buried. And so I did some experiments, and uh, I, you know, I couldn't reproduce it exactly. I couldn't dig a scale grave in Louisiana, for example, because I don't have the right, mm-hmm. kind of, you know. But in my 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 little sort of uh, aquarium lab, I couldn't reproduce it. I couldn't like cause the, you know, the the coffin uh, simulation to to fail. So I, I need to write up an article about that because for for maybe for yeah. insight or something. But. Yeah. Uh, I wanted Mythbusters to do it. I really wanted them to do it because I had, I had sort of pictured uh, like the scene from um, Poltergeist, the film, where at the end, you know, coffins are popping up all over the backyard and that and that's what would happen when the rain came. Yeah. But that's it's more like if you build like if your graves are shallow because of the water table and then there's flooding, it can wash out the graves and then they pop up. I mean, I've seen the it's, graves floating. I've seen floating. pictures of that in New Orleans. Right, yeah. it does. Ha- like, they do wash out. That's real. But yeah. they don't just instantly pop up out of the ground as near as I could tell. Uh, I'll if- have to Google this after the after oh, no, yeah. conversation. You have to look a long way because there's a lot more uh, reproductions of the story about it being because of the high water table. But again, okay. I would say look around the world and you'll find that lots of places have that situation but not all of them do the above ground burial so that makes sense yeah, yeah. yeah. that it's a style anyway uh so if any of our listeners want to do any research on that go for it you know <laughs> i'd love to hear about it so that but, sounds like another great um, show a topic uh, it is you know burial practices are really interesting um and and i think uh being buried that, alive i've always been fascinated with that and a lot of those gadgets and tools and things that that create oh, the little bells century, yeah. yes in case you were buried alive uh, yeah. By accident, and yeah, you again, there's an app for that attention. now, so it's way better. But <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> like, I can't even get coverage in my house. I can just imagine how good it would be six feet under. Uh, <laughs> it is kind of it is interesting how funerary rights sort of you know do relate to the local economy. So a lot of the time, people ask me, well, you know, if if there were vampires in the Balkans, if they were kind of all over the place, why didn't you just burn everybody? But burning a human body takes an enormous amount of fuel because we're quite large animals and we're full of water. So it's not something that's done as a matter of routine. They just save it for special occasions. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's we've never got, I don't think we'll ever have an episode about it, but spontaneous human combustion for people who are interested. The skeptical oh, explanation is 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 uh, wicking that well, yeah. that that because as you say, human bodies have a lot of water. They don't normally just burst into flame, but mm-hmm. but if you get the fat burning and let it just drip, it'll burn. Slow burning. It'll, it'll slow burn, but it'll only burn around the areas where the fat exists. So you yeah. get these sort of people burning up like a candle instead of burning up like a. Uh, the human torch, right? Yeah, with a leg left over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, but also the uh, speaking of burial practices, uh, there's all sorts of interesting tricks people use to deal with uh, supernatural uh, protection. So burning the putting the corpse's face down, mm-hmm. uh, uh, separating the head, uh, taking the arms off, uh, putting them into a cross shape. But there's, uh, do, you want, do you know some of those? Or have I just? Yeah, I, I mean, there are lots. Of, there are lots of ways. There are. Um, you can actually, if you're being troubled by a vampire, a lot of people would take the blood of the corpse uh, and they would eat it um, or smear themselves in it. Arnold Powell was said to have been troubled by a vampire and he got blood from the corpse and smeared it all over himself to be free of it. And you think, wow, that's a funky idea. How bizarre. Why would you eat something and then assume it would leave you alone? Um, but then, uh, you know, you think about communion, it's exactly the same thing. You're basically ingesting the God and hoping that he will regard you as being in the same club. So the the symbol like is... vaccinations. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah but, but it's also sympathetic magic. Uh, is yeah. a, yes. It's an yeah. ancient, ancient tradition. Yeah, yeah. so it's um, so you could you could eat vampire blood um, if you were really desperate, and uh, you could stake the body in the ground, and that that's just really really practical. If you've got a body that's too close to the surface and it's popping and moving all over the place, you know, you staking it into the ground is hardly the worst way of keeping it in there. You could stake a corpse through the abdomen; it didn't have to be through the heart; it didn't have to be this ceremonial thing. Um, you could cut its head off. You could burn it and sprinkle its ashes in the river. Um, you could. Uh, there was a guy called, I think his name was Demetrio Mayacura, and in the seventies in Stoke in England, he was uh, he was from Eastern Europe, and he was found dead. He had choked to death on a clove of garlic, because he had um, uh, he'd gone to sleep with a great big bulb of garlic in his mouth. He was afraid of vampires. He had he got garlic, a salt, and excrement, his own excrement, um, all around the windows in his room. Uh, and so he was kind of trying, trying to make his own witch bottle, in effect, to stop the vampire getting to him. And uh, I got a loan. Um, I mean, what must that room have smelled like? But um, Yeah, that's so sad. <laughs> it, it's really, it, it's sad and it's weird. Um, it, sounds, it would smell like the bathroom in an Italian restaurant. Was sort of <laughs> <laughs> well, I <laughs> he choked to death. We, as far as we know, a vampire has never ever killed anyone um, or even mutilated anyone. But we do know that fear of vampires uh, has killed people, and it certainly killed poor old Mister Mycuria. Well, I'd heard as well that uh, if someone had died and they were during a time where they were fearful of vampires, that they would lay out the body for a period of time uh, and that they would secure the room with garlic and various other things to protect that body turning into a vampire. Is, is that there, true at all? Yeah, that, well, there was, in some areas, they they would have, they would some areas they would have corpse watch anyway. You would have somebody attend the corpse. And the idea was that you would, uh, you wouldn't let any animals jump over 
the corpse because then um, the, the spirit could enter. They were especially worried about cats and things cats. like that. <laughs> they, they would even keep flies out, uh, which must have been hard. Yeah. It was in the summer and it was your fifth day. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, watching corpses as a preventive, as an apotropaic measure uh, it was known in some areas. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, it's easy to forget uh, what is a, a different experience it must have been to deal with the dead back then. Because now, at least here in America, we're so removed from it. We are. We, you know, we have these the whole death industry. You know, doing embalming and doing all sorts of things that take away a lot of the uh, uh, the natural processes, at least temporarily. Yeah. And so, you know, a, a dead person would be making a lot of noise. There would be gases and gurgling sounds coming from them as they're body began to digest itself there, there would be strange smells not pleasant smells and, and sometimes the bodies move after death and like this, yeah this uh yeah. it's it, so you know staying with a body overnight doing during a wake must have been a sh- just kind of scary i don't know definitely <laughs> perhaps i don't know about scary maybe perhaps because I, I do wonder whether or not people are removed in a rather unhealthy way from the reality of death um, in a modern context, because oh, we're removed from everything. I mean, like I w- people die in a hospital. Um, <laughs> we don't see, we don't necessarily see the body. I mean, I've, on a couple of occasions, I've been with people who've died, and I've been um, there. You know, as the body is taken away and seeing the body afterwards, and I've got to say, it's actually, I think it's a very healthy experience because you really, you really understand each minute of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like people. I mean, I I eat meat. I'm not a vegetarian. Okay. I have vegetables mm-hmm. in my family, but as a person who eats meat, I feel it's you need to be aware of where the meat comes from. And for yeah. me, that means I've been on the farm and participated in the slaughtering process. And so it's not pleasant, but I know I know what's you happening. You and Ted Nugent. Well, I'm not I'm not denying that it exists. <laughs> no, it's like when my kids my kids wanted to eat meat, and I went. <laughs> I just I want them to be aware because if you're not aware of it, then if you have to make that ethical choice, you know, yeah. uh, about whether you want to do this or not, uh, you're you're kind of chickening out in a way. Without, that's probably about. Well, I, I, I absolutely, I absolutely. <laughs> yes, and, and that is a so. I think that that experience can give you. Um, it can make you aware of the contrast between an ethical life and an unethical life for an animal, and you can decide what you pay for when you eat your meat. So, yeah, absolutely, people should be engaged with that kind of suffering because yeah. choices yeah. their choices make the world go around. And just to be clar- clarify a bit more, it, my family <laughs> have a lot of ranching and farming. In my family, it's not it's not like I just said, well, I think I should like to, <laughs> I should like to kill an animal now <laughs> to go and look for some death today. Right. <laughs> no, that's a that's a good comparison though because nowadays you go to the supermarket and everything is just prepackaged and wrapped up and uh, you have no idea of where it comes from and and how it's treated and right. um yeah that that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. I have to say I feel really uncomfortable eating bacon because I mean chickens are really dumb. Th- chickens are chickens are dumb, but I can't feel too bad about that. But but pigs, God they're clever and um that's pos- probably not a good thing to eat a pig. They're clever and delicious. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know no, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. I, I do. I I I I I'm very sympathetic, and like there are some pigs. Like you know, my my family raised pigs, so I've been on mm-hmm. pig farms, and and some of them are are quite nice. And they, now I would say they're not very good parents. Um, 
What because you know, eating their young? And they that... eat their young. They sit on them. They you know they're they're, they're not that great. And they eat each other. They're they're very they're they're quick to cannibalism. <laughs> well, I think the movie Babe really made turned a lot of people into vegetarians, or at least stopped eating bacon. Yeah, I would, for a while, maybe. And I, it did have an impact on me, and I believe this strongly. I will not eat a talking pig. So, <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, who can? Yeah. Well, yeah. haven't you got those stories of clever pigs, sapient pigs, Toby, and all of those other smart pigs, like smart horses, and well, yeah. I mean, some, well, clearly, some pigs are smarter than others, right? But, but if they were are, really smart, they would escape. You know how you've so. got clever Hans, and um, there, there were stories of several clever pigs as well historically. Well, the Bible has a talking donkey. I, do I guess. maths and yeah, yeah, talking horses. Well, they have those stories, but I, I, I believe I'm going to just go ahead and say it. I'm skeptical about counting horses. I mean, horses that are mathematical. So clever, clever Hans was um, was uh, definitely thought to, it was he was. Um, What's the word? He was debunked, wasn't he? He was yes. debunked. He was debunked. His handler may have were... been completely sincere, though. I don't. I got the impression mm, yeah. that his handler didn't realize he was giving clues to the horse. Clues, exactly, yeah. Well, that was the birth of behavioral studies in animals. And it, to be also, to be fair, he was a darn smart horse, though, to come up with the I will stamp until my you know master smiles or whatever. So. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Still clever, just not in the, the way that... He's positioned to be. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm usually hated by horses. I've done more than my fair share of putting costumes and makeup on horses. So um, they hate me. Uh, I, I would imagine if you've done it once, that was more than your fair share. <laughs> yeah, they've never been kicked <laughs> by a horse. Have I ever been what? Ever been kicked by a horse? I hear they get can get pretty violent. No, I, I haven't, but I have been bitten. There was there was one that was just it was about to take my finger off, and it was just glowering at me because it was three o'clock in the morning. It didn't want to wear, well, wear the damn costume anymore, <laughs> and I had the apple in my pocket, and it knew it, and it let go. But it, it was thinking about oh. it. Oh wow! So was it was it a serious uh, injury? No, no, he didn't draw blood. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was just threatening mm. me. Uh, uh, yeah. They have they have very you know they have very strong teeth. They so I know yeah. they're vegetarian, but they can bite the hell out of you. So oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, so, and they're big, you know they're very big and powerful. When you think about how how we measure vehicles, it's with horsepower. That's because horses are really powerful. Yeah. <laughs> so so Deborah, you've listened to the show before. You're probably already prepared with your answer. But we mm-hmm. like to ask our guests, what's your favorite monster? My favourite monster, this probably won't come as much of a surprise if you've looked at my website, is um, is witches. Yay! Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by witches because they're monsters by contract. Uh, every other kind of monster is just born a monster. You know, um, werewolves are born werewolves and the Loch Ness monster is born a Loch Ness monster. But with witches, they actually they actually choose what they do and then go about their monstrous activities after that. So I'm going to choose witches. Did you oh, happen nice. to see the the witch, the new film? The witch, oh, the yes, I, I reviewed it for um, a radio show over here, a BBC Radio um, Radio Four Front Row. Yeah, how did you? Um, like I, it? I liked it. I, I did like it. I thought. I thought it was very historically authentic, um, and for me, it could have ended five minutes earlier, to be honest. Um, It it kind of went off a bit, but uh, yeah, it it was absolutely beautiful looking, I mean, gorgeous looking, um, and I love the main actor whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, but he was superb. The, uh, it just, it did such a great job of 
capturing the the witch lore and, and hmm. you know for people like like yourself and I know I've I've read a lot of witch stories and, and I I was just I, I practically cheered the moment the hair showed up. I was like, "Yay!" <laughs> yeah, spoilers. We're on the right track. Okay. Yeah, no, this guy right. knows what he's talking about. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the the, uh, the uh, and it's very bleak. So just to warn mm-hmm. the listeners, it's not a happy film. But I'll be honest, you'll know that in the first five minutes that this is one seriously dark film. But but it, it really does a good job of of uh, sort of visualizing not necessarily what rich, witches really were, but what which lore said they were, which is an important distinction, I think. Yeah, it definitely creates the right environment, and um, I, you know the man's pride as well. I mean, he was a good man, but his pride being his downfall really was was um, something that was very and being thrown out of the community too. I, I did like the film. Yeah, oh, I've got it ready on Netflix to watch. Oh, it's a good oh, we'll one. enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, but but kind of switch it off before the last five minutes. That often happens, doesn't it? Did you think that, Blake? <laughs> So uh, Karen hasn't seen it, um, and many of our listeners may not have as well. So uh, I, I didn't dislike the last five minutes, but I thought it might have been gratuitously sexualized. I, uh, but but or did you like it because of the lack of, or did you think it would have been better to be more ambiguous? Um, uh, I don't mind gratuitous sex. Um, I thought, <laughs> I, I thought that, I, I thought that the, the thing was the whole film could have been ambiguous and it would have been better. Yeah. Um, so, so I, it comes down to the, so one of my favorite movies is uh, curse of the demon. Mm-hmm. And then, um, in that film, the, the director didn't want to include the demon. Yeah. Right? And the original story by M.R. James doesn't explicitly tell you whether anything supernatural is going on or not. It's beautiful. And so ambiguity certainly has its place. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but, but visually, it, it sort of did do what – I mean, it, it presented what the stories say happens in those sort of expo- in those situations. And so since they had stuck so well with a lot of the other stuff, I was okay with it. But I didn't, I didn't hate it. Um, but I certainly could see how you could have gone with the ambiguous end and it would have been – uh, it would have, I think it would have been better. It would have been that you you would have seen how people would have started to react in a certain way because yeah, yeah. they were getting desperate on various levels, um, you know, isolation and lack of food and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so I think the ambiguity would have served it better. So it, it it would have definitely been a more cerebral film at that point. Mm, so yeah. um, it would have made, it, although it was a very thought provoking film. Anyway, I don't want to say more because I don't want to spoil it for Karen. But I I bet you if I ever <laughs> make to skeptics in the pub in in, in the UK, we will. Uh, I, <laughs> we can sit down and talk about it. So. That would be fun. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. You just heard me, Blake Smith, and Dr. Karen Stolzno interview Deborah Hyde, editor of the British magazine, The Skeptic. A link to Deborah's work will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed in this show represent the opinions of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society or of The Skeptic, which is a totally different magazine in case you missed that part of the interview. Links to find Karen and myself on Twitter and Facebook are in our show notes as well. If you get a chance, please drop by the Facebook group. There's lots of other listeners there who get up to all kinds of fascinating discussions about monsters and jokes. And there's also comics and cat videos because this is the internet we're talking about. I enjoyed this episode because it reminded me very much of the kinds of conversations I get up to when I manage to attend skeptic conferences. 
like the one coming up in October from CSI. Here is the soothing voice of Richard Saunders to tell you about it. PsyCon Las Vegas. No, it's not an illusion. PsyCon is coming to Vegas, and you're not just hearing things. For too long, skeptics have been wandering the desert, parched and aimless, wondering when, oh when, will they find an oasis? Uh, But just on the horizon, hope beckons. At last, a chance for critical thinkers from around the world to celebrate with the brightest minds and biggest personalities in science and skepticism. It's no mirage. It's PsyCon 2016, and this time, it's in Vegas. October the 27th to the 30th, come to the Excalibur Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, where brilliant speakers will make the City of Light truly shine with skeptic stars like evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, science education champion Eugenie Scott, SETI astronomer Jill Tata, and many more to be announced. And yes, James the Amazing Randy will be there too. PsyCon 2016 is a production of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, the people who bring you the Skeptical Inquirer magazine, the group that began organized skepticism a generation ago. And what better location for a conference of skeptics than a city full of illusions? Don't wait. Unlike claims of celebrity psychics, conspiracy theorists, and alt-med hucksters, this is no illusion. PsyCon is real. Register now at www.psyconference.org That's C-S-I conference.org If you like Monster Talk and want to help us grow, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. I, I, I want to say, how did you become interested in werewolves? But that, let's, let's skip that because you are interested in werewolves and move on <laughs> to what about werewolves fascinates you or what, why, why the interest in werewolves? What, what, what's What's driving that, do you think? And, and, and what do you find best about them? Or what seems to keep you hanging on that? And I'm going to have to edit that question down quite a bit in post. <laughs> <laughs>